Welcome to another episode of Ladywood, the show where two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie discuss it through a feminist lens. My name is Brandy Sperry. I am a writer and co-host of the Downton Gabby podcast. My name is Zita Sean. I am a comedian and television comedy writer. And I'm Lynn Sternberger, also a TV writer. Today we'll be discussing the 10th episode of the second season, Advances Nun Miraculous, written by Deadwood newbie Sarah Hess. Always nice to see another lady in the mix. She has since gone on to be a writer-producer on Beth House and Orange is the New Black, directed by Deadwood staple Dan Minahan. This episode first aired May 8, 2005. In the wake of a tragic accident, Cochrane delivers a dire prognosis as the entire camp stands vigil. Swearingen enlists Star and Adams to help improvise a con on the newly returned Commissioner Jari, Jari Jerry, depending on <laughs> yeah. who's saying the name. He's the Jar Jar Binks of the show. <laughs> As he deals with the Binkerton agent, Andy Kramed, former Deadwood pariah, offers himself as the camp's new minister. Martha regrets her move to Deadwood. I mean, this yeah. Is an exercise in understatement. <laughs> <laughs> because her son is dying and she's like, if I had stayed in Michigan, maybe this wouldn't happen. And then Seth is like, yeah. <laughs> comforting in this moment, you fucking asshole. You're the one who made the move, Seth. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, so this is a little bit more of a somber episode as we are, you know, watching the death shudders of this young boy. Doc Cochran says that his chest wouldn't have survived even if he was a man. So he got kicked in by the horse. The, the chest got kicked in by the horse. And then his brain basically lost function. It got that, it rattled around too much. Yeah. He yeah. got kicked in the head. His eyes are not responding, which means the brain is swollen beyond repair, mm. I guess. Um, the doc doesn't have a good day. There's in no MRIs one. in Deadwood, but the prognosis is dire. <laughs> Very dire. And then we've also got... Moe's manual, who's been shot but hasn't died yet. We have to endure seeing Leon and Constableton drag him over to the Bella Union. And yeah, then. That was like an episode long arc almost. <laughs> yeah. It was like they, they like dislocate their shoulder basically trying to haul this fat man Constableton herniates himself. He herniates himself. Oh, oh Lord. So then. Sorry, we did not mention in the last episode, and it, it bears mentioning. The dummy that they use to show William getting kicked is the worst prop I've ever seen. <laughs> it almost lo- doesn't look like anything that bad happened. Like, it looks like he, like, fell over. And then, yeah. you know, of course, cut to the actual yes. boy's blade yes. there. A difficult stunt to film. Very difficult. I'm sure, because you've got the live animal component. But really, I think they were just probably like, we're going to have to settle for that. The stupid dummy. The horse, like, kind of kicking it lightly. Yeah. And that's the big tragedy. But I guess uh, Steve is also right there, too. So is it the, yes. that it was the difficulty of having a live adult actor plus prop plus horse? Maybe. I kind of feel like you didn't even need to show it yeah, for what true. it was. I wish they had cut that stupid dummy out because it really <laughs> took me out of the moment. Well, you know, we've, we've suspended our disbelief. Yes. We're Sorry, here. We're back. <laughs> He's kicked. He's kicked. He's done kick good. Let's talk about the threads that are left hanging while Bullock is there standing vigil over his son. One thing I wanted to mention was that, like, early in this episode, we finally get 
Merrick making a kind of like morally gray choice, which is that he has accidentally overseen on the desk of the telegraph operator a message that Jerry is coming back. And right, and this seems to be like right before he arrives, arrives. Right. so it barely gives Al any time to prepare. But it does it does give Al time to snap into action, making a plan of how they're going to pretend that someone has actually met with an agent from Montana, which of course is a rumor that they have made up at this point. Yes. Uh, It is fascinating that uh, in Bullock's absence, because he's busy dealing with his family matters, uh, Saul becomes a part of this plot. (laughs) It's kind of a funny scene as he's pacing around, saying everything that he knows about one time he had dinner with some dude in Montana. I mean, I mean, it's like if I tried to talk about like current Seattle politics or something when I haven't (laughs) lived there for a while, I'd be like... Yeah, people are mad about the tunnel or whatever. <laughs> like, it's not the best intel, but hopefully it's something they can work with. And who are Clark and Daly? They're supposed to be the Montana people, right? I guess. Some big okay. wigs that he knows about. Mm-hmm. But they hate each other and this and that. So eventually they decide, okay, we got to pretend that it was Clark or a representative of Clark. Mm-hmm. And they somehow come up with a story to pretend like the guy had a bag over his head so they didn't recognize him. I don't, again, this is not Al's finest hour for plotting. No. Although Jari is dumb enough that he seems to buy it. Yeah, the whole thing was farcical, to be honest. And it was a bit like, okay, we have to show that something, like the politics of the camp continue to take on while everybody else is dealing with this emotional fallout of this young kid getting kicked. But it was honestly ridiculous. More interesting to me was the way that everybody reacts following the accident. I mean, as you might imagine, Martha's destroyed and Bullock's very deeply upset, but like we get to see a few other characters crack who haven't had that kind of emotional reaction so far. I think in part because it's a kid and they feel kind of responsible and I don't I guess William was like emblematic of boyhood and mm. all things good about boy. He's just like this pure soul, right? Which is why I didn't like him. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> but it definitely seemed like he was the ideal of yeah. of life on the frontier and what like the Deadwood bro writers were like oh we'd fish and hunt and plant sunflowers and the perfect all the ducks on the pond and, but um, where is this pond the, the, the yeah. referencing I'm like uh, where, where the big trout lives <laughs> God, don't talk to me about that trout <laughs> Yeah, I, I was really surprised by both. Uh, I think Tom not all had reason to cry because it was under his watch. It's very heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. Very heartbreaking. Him, yeah. And then Steve is just being extra racist on top of everything, uh, blaming everybody but himself and just like the unfortunate circumstance. But um, Tracy crying that was uh, that was really significant. You know, Tracy crying was pretty amazing, and also seeing her and Saul fighting with each other because they didn't know what to do with their upset was, I thought, very excellent acting, very excellent writing. Saul is upset to see her back at the gym, but it's kind of like, what is she supposed to be doing with herself at this moment? I think that's what they all feel on some level Mm -hmm. and why they end up just standing outside the dock shack, just waiting for the inevitable moment when they're told that William is gone. Yeah. And Doc doesn't even know what to do with himself because he declares that he's not going to recover early in the episode and then he kind of keeps returning to check and then seeing that he, that he doesn't want to disturb Bullock and Martha who are going through their grief stages and whatnot, he keeps leaving. So he's like, sure, I'll go treat Moe's and, you know. 
Yeah, we too unfortunately get some more fat shaming in this episode. <laughs> There's so many fat I cannot jokes. endorse saying I'm going to be operating on a whale, no matter how hilarious Brad Dorf's delivery of said line might be. Moses is a terrible person, and that's, the, that's sort of the license for all the fat jokes, right? I, yeah. It's definitely not PC. <laughs> I do like seeing Jane being the one who kind of has to say to the doc, like, you're really not even going to try. Yeah. Like, you're not even going to try to save this guy, who I obviously, like, don't give a fuck individually about this person. But, like, that's what we do. We're going to yes. try to save somebody. It's always nice when we get to see that caretaker side of Jane. Is this the first time Jane's been sober? Because she looked sober in that scene. She's Oh, you mean since she went off the deep mm-hmm. end again? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because it's only been a matter of two days. They're pretty clear about that. Like, the between last episode and this episode, it has literally been a night. Yeah. No, not even. And just, most of these episodes are just like the next day, the next day, the next yeah. day, which yeah. makes me think we're going to get some kind of time magical jump. time jump at some point and then in the last couple episodes because this entire season of season two feels like it's taken place over like... A week. A week, a week or two. <laughs> yeah, a week or two. And I mean, Al's quick recovery is the only thing that seems to be indicating that any longer time has passed but i think that is also a matter of convenience because they can't have him just bedridden for the whole season interestingly they've had jane in this like battered face makeup for three episodes now because this is following quickly on the heels of her like night that she doesn't remember Mm -hmm. and i'm like yeah it is no time at all like Mm -hmm. she literally has been sober i think less than 48 hours at this point Trixie is near breaking with this Alma situation. I think she just... I think she's trying to distract herself a little bit by being like, let me yell at Alma about Ellsworth right now. As if that makes a difference. And part of me is cynically like, well, is she going to want to marry Ellsworth if Mm -hmm. her man might not have so many obligations quickly? (laughs) Like, is that a dark thought that might enter your head at that moment? Ooh, I had not (laughs) even thought about that. Brandy, you... Is that really bad? (laughs) Sometimes you scare me. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just saying, like, she's keeping watch. Maybe she has a different motivation in the back of her head. That's probably probably a mean thought to have. That Alma might have that thought. I have a similar thought. It was just like, oh, is... (laughs) Is this really the moment to be committing? Yeah. I love that that... I mean, like, I wish that that were canon, for sure. It can be our canon. (laughs) (laughs) Ladywood canon. It would be good. Like I said, we don't get much... We don't spend time with Alma and Bullock in love. Except for, like, a a flash in the pan. Yeah. They're, like, in, like, their sex honeymoon for, like, two episodes. And then then they immediately break up when Martha comes to town. It's like pining, pining, pining. Sex, honeymoon, everything goes to shit. Yeah. Immediately. It's bad to think of a child as only, like, a prop or an obstacle at this point, but that is kind of how he feels in the show. And Alma's carrying Seth's actual biological child right now, so... Very true. One heir and a spare. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Who's going to inherit the house now? (laughs) With the stream and the trout. And all of the woods. (laughs) And all the woods. I did like the acting choices... That Molly Parker and who plays Ellsworth? Jim Beaver. Jim Beaver they make uh, because I think before the proposal they had almost no tension whatsoever. And whatever choices they're making because uh, Alma's reluctance to address 
the proposal is giving them a lot of interesting like tension in their scenes now because there it wasn't there before it was before it was very like you know just mm-hmm. professional and Ellsworth was a solid dude but now I'm like ooh yeah what's gonna happen they made things real weird yeah yeah <laughs> they made it weird um, <laughs> Alma always makes things weird that's, that's true she is that the, is her specialty yeah. Also, I think Anna Gunn is very good in this episode as well, as with the like, there's like a tear on the edge of her eye the whole time. It's, it's really compelling and it's really sad. And this woman has gone through a lot. It makes me upset that we don't spend more time with her when it's, it's always in relation to her son, which I guess is probably accurate to the period. Yeah. Or, well, they could have fucking had the school teacher stay. I mean, I know they wanted to yeah. make her go away so that like... Now they can have this tension about whether Martha will be the school teacher, but like I would have preferred to have her actually have a friend of an appropriate station to learn a little bit more about how she's feeling in a natural way rather than just one outburst towards Seth and then shoving that back down and into herself again so that she can, I don't know, try to try to make a go of it. I mean, she's completely isolated from everybody else at Deadwood. She has no other relationships other than Seth and her son. Yeah. The sad thing about the death of her son, in addition to just a mother's love and and losing their child, is that he is the last, like, remnant of her husband. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's talk about... I think that last scene is really effective where Seth essentially starts talking as if he is his own brother. Like, he's talking to William, trying to comfort him in his last moments as if he's his actual father, saying how proud he is of him, talking about stuff that we know his biological dad taught him, thanking him for taking care of his mother and saying, you know, they're all together again now, which is obviously not true. Then we get Martha doing exactly what, like, a good religious woman would do, now focusing on, like, go to your maker and later we'll be together again, which is just... It was was heartbreaking. It was beautifully acted, beautifully delivered. It definitely was one of the more, like, emotionally resonant scenes in the season so far. That was sad. I mean, it was kind of like turning all of that pastoral decentness on its head. Mm. I, I have a question, which is, how long does it take to become a minister? Not long. No. Apparently, no. because Andy Creamed walks back into town. Somehow he's gotten the message that he heard a child was trampled. I, I guess someone <laughs> sent a telegram to look for a minister or something. It's a little weird. Yeah. Not that I'm not intrigued to see him again, because I thought that was a pretty good character. Mm-hmm. But... It's it's a little odd. It's a little like like they might as well have just brought him back in a different role, the same way they did with Gary Dillahunt. It's like pretending like it's the same dude. Yeah, he gets a makeover. He looks blonder for some reason. His hair's grown out. Like his packs look amazing. I just want to say no scars. No, it's got like one blemish, and you're like, oh yeah, he almost died. I it didn't bother me. It I I didn't stumble over it. Like yeah, if I was thinking about the timeline, but you know, remember when they were uh, holding the jury? trial thing and everybody was a lawyer like everybody and their mom was a lawyer <laughs> now yeah, everybody their mom's a minister can be a minister yeah I don't think it requires that much like nobody's stamping diplomas have, and putting them on yeah. their shack walls you know I think you just have to carry around with, like a tiny bible yeah you could be a minister <laughs> Cena. just get a tiny bible and bible. show up where you need it <laughs> What religion is it that Richardson is devoted to? <laughs> He's a pagan. It, it's 
incredible. I was like, I had completely forgotten this. Yeah. And then I was like, this is so, he's like a witch. I love it. <laughs> Richardson the witch. I mean, Have we heard him talk before this? Yeah, when he creepily told Alma, like, you're pretty. <laughs> he sounds very different. I don't know if they did some, had somebody do the voice, because, in fact, we don't see him talking all that much. It's more like we hear him talking, but we're not on him. But, like, he has this, like, rich baritone now. <laughs> I didn't notice that it was any different. It is different. And <laughs> oh, he, wow. And it's like he's being responsible and upstanding, so he gets to be have, like, a James Earl Jones voice. <laughs> I like his ritual, too, just pointing the horn towards the other horn. <laughs> I can get behind that, yeah. for sure. I'm into it. It seems too much, maybe it's, like, a little bit influenced by Native American religions, too. Who knows? I mean, I think it's just nonsense, but <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it. As opposed to other things which are not nonsense. <laughs> yeah, Christianity, no nonsense there. <laughs> I was raised Catholic. I can slam Christianity. <laughs> oh, we can talk about um, the general and hostage, so they're... Uh, the general has convinced Hostetter, like, we need to get the fuck out of town, which I completely agree with, because they are just going to be scapegoated for this as soon as somebody figures out that the horse comes from the livery, which I think Steve is already... Yeah, you know, he already went yeah. and tried to check on them. Yeah, and it was said, be back in three hours, and clearly they're, like, three hours away <laughs> to yeah. Portland, Oregon. Yeah. So I, I was a little, uh, like, confused by the scene between the two of them at the campfire. It was, like, was Hofstetter Hofstetter thinking that he could bring the horse back to camp yes. and somehow explain mm-hmm. everything yeah. and everything would be okay. That seems to be where he lands in his own sort of like moral monologue journey mm-hmm. that he does. Like his options are basically turn himself in and probably be killed, run away, which he doesn't want to do, or maybe if he, they find this horse, bring it back, apologize, then he can go on, move on to a new place. He seems to know he'll never be able to just stay in Deadwood now. Yeah. That they can go to Oregon and start over with essentially feeling like he did what he should do for having caused that pain. Yeah. And the general just wants to split. He's like, no, I think the let's keep going. Right. <laughs> he eventually agrees to help him, though, but I think... If I were him, I'd be hedging my bets to the point where, like, okay, but if this doesn't look like it's going well, like, this is your plan, not my plan, and I'm going to get out of here as fast as I can. Yeah. The question of race in Deadwood, if I recall correctly, we will revisit it quite a bit in Season 3 through mm-hmm. through through some other characters and whatnot. But um, it doesn't sound like it was fun to be not white. Yeah, in Deadwood. It's what it boils down to. Like, every minor error can can land you in a lynch mob, basically. Like, oh, your horse gets away? You could be targeted and murdered. Yeah. Oh, you, mm-hmm. you know, loan a horse to the wrong guy? Oh, you catch somebody jacking off on a horse and hold him to a Oh, you could be tarred. Oh, you could, you know. Yeah, that's why I feel like the field general has the right idea. He was tarred for something that wasn't even remotely close to, like, why he was in town. That was horse theft, right? It was, it was just... Steve's grievance that he had with him and yeah. from we don't even know what. I wish that this was much different today, but it feels a little like you can be pulled over by a cop for a broken taillight and shot for no reason kind of thing as well. Will they address race in the movie? <laughs> Will they? <laughs> Let's talk about, there's also another uh, little moment with Wu at, where he tries to offer Jewel what I think is a cup of tea, but she can't take it with yeah. her hands and she can't communicate well to him why. She isn't taking it, and that kind of broke my heart a little bit. <laughs> like, the communication piece when it comes to 
him is another element that I I would like to see explored a little bit more. He's obviously very observant about what's going on in camp. He has a heart. He cares about what's happening to this child, all, even though he doesn't particularly know the people involved. Yeah. I feel like I'm setting myself up for disappointment with this movie because <laughs> I, when I'm thinking of all the things that they could pay service to, like, that they probably will because it's a, a movie of a beloved show and it's only this long and mm-hmm. um, I don't think we're going to get, like, a nuanced exploration of something necessarily. I think it's mostly going to be like, here's the characters you love in a new dilemma. Yeah. But I would love to be mistaken about that and learn something new or see them correct some of their, as I see it, like, errors in storytelling, which was this segregation of their cast. Do we want to talk about the the Silas and uh, the bargaining scene with Silas, Jerry, and Swearingen? I know Adams is your very favorite, Lynn, so I'm sure you love this scene. Greasier than ever. Again. What's he doing? Where is he been? What is the point? What's he been doing? Why are we meant to care? And he's being mistaken for his second, too, which I think that's also really funny. <laughs> which we ever actually established where the fuck Hawkeye is for all of this? Or why Have I was asking for him in the first place? We've met him a couple of times. He's got his, like, bowler hat and he doesn't really yeah. say anything. Yeah. I think it was just an excuse to have Dan agitated running around the town yelling at people, which I'm not against. (laughs) It is is funny to watch him on his various missions, Um, but I think there's also an element uh, he's getting so into it to distract himself from what's going on the same way Trixie is focusing on Ellsworth to Mm -hmm. distract herself. You know, everyone's kind of purposefully not thinking about this and Al as well. Al makes a couple comments where he's like, "This that's none of my business, whatever." But then at the end, he's out on his balcony mm-hmm. watching, and he looks very sad when he realizes what happened. Yeah, I mean, we know that Al has feelings about young boys and children, not Michael Jackson feelings. <laughs> Al swears and orphanage feelings. <laughs> orphanage feelings. And yeah, it seems like he's been exempted from a lot of the sort of like repercussions of it, and that's sort of like. They all fall down on his shoulders all at once. Some excellent acting. Yeah. Any other standout moments that we want to discuss? Is there some sort of thing the writers are trying to do with um, the deaths of Moe's Manuel and the deaths of William at the same time? They're two bodies. Doc is sort of scrambling between the two of them. What's the what's the sort of like bigger theme thing that the writers are trying to do in this episode? I honestly think it's one of those things where it's like you have like the pure boy mm-hmm. and then you have the living whale who has murdered his own brother and got himself into exactly the situation that he's in. And it's one of those things where it's like life isn't fair. Like fate doesn't, you know. Right. Most gets to live and, and William the boy dies. Yeah. 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 I can yeah. see that, especially in the way that the doc reconsiders you know, would he have been so quick to say, I can't save this guy if it was someone more upstanding who had a bullet lodged next to their mm-hmm. heart? Probably not. You know, he needs to think about it in his head as far as like what he can actually accomplish that day and take away the sort of moralizing that he was doing beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he also got a very funny line. I mean, when they were trying to like prop, Mose up and he was like why not run at him from across the room stab him with all three pitchforks <laughs> I, was, I was like is that your medical advice <laughs> is that the Hippocratic he's feeling punchy <laughs> he's definitely feeling punchy he definitely doesn't do anything to help Constable Stapleton 
<laughs> He's herniated and then just walks away. He prods him painfully, I guess. And then, um, and then there was like one other sort of interesting comment on this, the sort of morality of life and death. And that was quote, a quote from Walcott, who we know is a serial killer. Right. <laughs> yep. And he said, I am a sinner who does not expect forgiveness. Yeah, no shit. But I am not a government official. <laughs> that was a great line. I love that line. I love that line, but then I was also like, wow, it's like Republican propaganda. Right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, do we have any nominations for most or least feminist moments? For this episode? I don't think it's that relevant to this episode. I only had one, and it was kind of removed from the plot, which was that Isringhausen ultimately signs the deal with Al, and to our understanding, leaves town unharmed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, she didn't have to go out like Flora. That's true. You know, she didn't end up... She was an, a woman with her own journey. She had her own goals. She didn't really accomplish those goals, but she also didn't die. Like, she was smart, savvy, and she gets to live. I also love the closing line of that whole arc, we assume, if we're never going to see her before, as Al look at her after all of this that they've been back and forth, and he says, I wish I had five like you. Yeah. <laughs> The, like, admiration that he admits in the end after all of this, like, mm-hmm. insulting her and all of, like, yes. everything he's trying to pull over on her. And then he's like, you were a worthy adversary. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Al has that many worthy adversaries, you I know? think he had a little bit of fun with this whole mm-hmm. thing with mm-hmm. her. I do. So she gets to live, and for me, that is the most feminist thing in this kind I'll of... Take yeah, it, she yeah. came to town. She collected a paycheck from Alma for like six months. She got to sleep with Silas Adams. I know not a boon for everyone, but he might She be enjoyed the, it. She enjoyed it. He's like we, the cleanest of all the men, except for <laughs> Timothy Oliphant, you know? And then she gets to leave with yeah. a $5,000 payday. Like, I mean, we don't know where she's going. I imagine she can't go back into the Pinkerton ranks, but would they come after her? Like, I don't know. She's an interesting lady. What would the spinoff, the Isringhausen, what would her next town be? (laughs) What would she do? Yeah, I didn't even know Pinkertons had women in their ranks. Yeah, I'm not. Oh, it's sure. not history that I'm super well versed nope. in. I'm just going with it. I for just the show. thought that they were like people who broke up um, unions. <laughs> I thought the Pinkerton Agency. Oh my god, this is going to be an episode of bad history. But like, <laughs> I, I was under the impression that the Pinkerton Agency started with there was like a woman in the, and it was like a family business. Well, that was we should investigate. Yeah, we'll look into it. Sorry before, about that. <laughs> before we spread in misinformation about the Pinkerton. It was just a Weezer album. <laughs> oh my god! It was Pink Triangle. <laughs> no, that's a song off of Pinkerton. Oh, okay. off of Pinkerton, oh. which is an album by Weezer. Well, we will see next week what happens. Uh, I assume we're going to have to endure a funeral, uh, which uh, won't be too fun. But always good to get the whole town together for an event. <laughs> Uh, until then, you can find us on Twitter at Ladywoodcast. You can find me at WeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. You can find me at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And I'm at Lynn Sternberger. We have two episodes left in the whole season. My Let's goodness. hope for something exciting. Yes. Yeah, an excellent finale was had yes. by all. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.